Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, I want to start with a little bit of review from last week's class session. We talked about the film Rebecca, which was a highly respected film, garnered Hitchcock his first best directing Oscar nomination as well as uh, the first film he directed that got a uh, Best Picture nomination. But as you may remember, Hitchcock said that that movie wasn't a true Hitchcock film. So he returned back to his roots, which is obviously the thriller, as we all, I think, know by now. But he, he Hitchcock was in for a bit of a surprise. He didn't really realize that the thriller wasn't as highly regarded in the United States as it was in Britain. Uh, in fact, he he said that most Americans consider the thriller to be more or less second-class literature and therefore not considered good cinema. Uh, in fact, taking the script for this film that we're going to talk about today, he went to Gary Cooper with it, but he wouldn't do it. Uh, although he found out that that was a mistake. Uh, in fact, later after this movie came out and did very, very well, uh, Gary Cooper said to Hitch, I, I, I made a mistake, didn't I? But because of this kind of second-class literature mentality that people had about the thriller, he couldn't get the best cast. He couldn't get the best of hardly anything. But nonetheless, this film was very well regarded and did, was very, very successful. And that film is The Foreign Correspondent. Now, Foreign Correspondent is a pre-World War II story of an American journalist who is sent to Europe to find out the who, what, when, where, and why of the impending war. And along the way, he learns of a conspiracy, but more importantly, he finds the love, love of his life. Now, this story is everything we've talked about before that, that, that Hitch felt made a good story. It's got, it's got comedy. It's got a MacGuffin. Of course, it has suspense, being the master of suspense as he was, and it is by far his loosest adaptation that we've covered yet. And we're going to talk about suspense. We're going to go kind of into that uh, in a little bit more depth than we have in the past. But first, I really want to talk about the effects in this film, not because they're so great, not because a lot of them hold up so well, even to this day, but because they touch on something that I think is really important for a lot of young and inexperienced filmmakers to understand, and even some maybe more experienced filmmakers to understand. And that is the nature of problem solving and how crucial it is to not only this industry, but just in life in general. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step back from Hitchcock for a second and uh, give you some of my experience. I have worked as a production assistant. I have worked as a grip. I have worked as a digital imaging technician. As I, I was the director of photography on my own film. Uh, I've worked on a number of student films in a variety of capacities, everything from an assistant camera to a camera operator to a gaffer to a key grip. Um, I've, I've been on enough sets and I've seen enough people do this professionally and unprofessionally that I, I understand the nature of how this goes. And the thing that keeps coming back around is problem solving. Typically what happens in pre-production is you get to a point in the script and you realize, how are we going to shoot that? I don't, I don't even, I don't know. How, how are we going to get that car to flip over? Or how are we, how are we going to stage a firefight in, in a school? I, I, whatever it is that you're doing or, or, or even in your own backyard. So you, you figure it out and you have to solve that problem. 
especially if it's a point that's important for the story. You have to figure out how to keep that part in the script but work around the difficulties of it and come to the, mo- come to the most efficient and cost-effective solution that you can. But even if you plan for everything you think you can plan for, when you get on set, something's going to go wrong. People are not perfect. Mistakes happen. Things get overlooked. Things get forgotten. Things get left behind at the rental house, whatever it may be. You have to figure out how to solve problems on set. So the way I see it, problem solving is half the job, whether you're a writer, a producer, a director, a key grip, a director of photography, a camera operator, or even an editor. I mean, how many times have we edited something and realized that the coverage doesn't cut together? Well, you figure out how to solve that problem, or you have a continuity issue that you need to fix because it's glaring, or or somebody, somebody panned too far and there's equipment in the shot. I don't know. There's, there's all kinds of issues that come up, and you have to figure out how to solve the problems. And that's where this film comes in, and that's why I want to talk about the effects in this film. Because let's, let's think about the 1940s in, in cinema. Cameras are massive and are incredibly difficult to move. Sound equipment is not nearly what it is today. In fact, they're probably recording to vinyl. No matter how many recording tracks you have, are all getting mixed down to one record. Um... So shooting on location is incredibly difficult because you have to – just the camera and the sound equipment alone are nearly impossible to work with anywhere that you can't control. Not to mention film – film was, yes, universal but – or not – was was global at this point. But my guess is finding qualified technicians would have – might have been a little bit harder. We didn't have the same resources that we do now to find good professionals in other countries halfway around the world. So if you don't trust the technicians in Holland, then you need to bring your own technicians, and that gets expensive really, really quickly. So let's say, for example, that you have a movie like Foreign Correspondent that takes place in New York and Holland and London and out over the Atlantic. And how do you, how do you film that? If you can't actually go to all these places, you know, there's not a lot of places, if any places, in Los Angeles that look like London. And I can guarantee there's no places in Los Angeles that look like Holland. But you need to film it in a way that's convincing enough that the audience is going to think that it is Holland or London. Well, one of the answers to that question is you get the right people around you. Now, Hitchcock was still working with David O. Selznick at the time. And as you might remember, Selznick was the producer of Gone with the Wind. Now, what you might not know and what I didn't know until recently was that Gone with the Wind had like five directors on it or something crazy like that. But there was one guy who stayed on the project the whole time that Selznick really trusted and really, really admired his work. And that man was William Cameron Menzies. Now, Menzies was the first man, as far as I'm aware of, to be given the title of production designer. That was a title that Selznick gave him. Before that, he would have just been credited as an art director. Menzies' work on Gone with the Wind was bigger than an art director, bigger than that job description. See, an art director's job, my understanding, especially back in this day, was more of a build the sets, get the props, you know, anything we can see, set dressing, you know, you take care of. But then the costume designer worries about those, so don't worry about that. But Menzies was doing more than that. 
Menzies was storyboarding the movie. Menzies was overseeing almost every aspect of production, partially because they had so many directors. And Menzies was the common through line that kept that movie consistent. And, and Menzies worked in a very similar way to, that Alfred Hitchcock did. Remember both of them coming from an art direction background. In fact, while Hitch, Hitch didn't get his start in art direction, but Hitch got most of his reps on set before he became a director in art direction. So both he and Menzies approached this in a very similar way. They were very big on storyboarding, very big on, on methodically and, and very intentionally planning each shot and each element that would be in that shot and where it would be in the frame, you know, the height of the, of the camera, all those sorts of things. And so Hitch and Menzies worked very well together. By the time the script was written, they knew exactly what they were going to shoot and how they were going to do it pretty much. In fact, Menzies was so trusted by Alfred Hitchcock that he would he, – he basically let Menzies be a second unit director on some of the more complicated effect shots. You know, Hitch would be in one studio filming, filming a dialogue scene and Menzies would be over on another soundstage uh, filming one of the big effect scenes. And Hitch would wander over and look at the shot and say, yeah, that looks good and then come back and, and direct his actors through their dialogue scene. So that's part of the problem solving. You get the right people around you to collaborate with. And you can do almost anything. You bring in someone who knows as much or even more than you do in a specific area. And between the two of you, you guys can figure out some really, really great solutions to almost any problem. So let me walk you through one of the shots. Hitch and Menzies decided that for one of their shots in Holland, they wanted to shoot down a road stretching toward the horizon and have three windmills in sort of, a, sort of an S pattern, sort of an S pattern where you have one on the right side close, one a little bit further away on the left side, and then one way in the back on the right side again. So you have well, more of a V shape, I guess. Sort of a, a V if you flipped it on its, on its side and drew a line between the, the three windmills. Well, part of, the, part of the solution to location shooting back then was, well, you just, you just shoot on the back lot. All the, all the big studios had, had acres of various settings that could easily be that, that, that could very easily mimic anything else. They had old-style European villages and they had uh, Greco-Roman uh, ancient uh, town squares and, and all sorts of things. But what nobody has is Dutch windmills because that can't stand for anything else. That's just what it is. So we have to make the Dutch windmills. So how do we do this? Well, you break down the shot into various pieces just like you would today. You, you, you take various assets and combine them together to make one single image. So let's break this shot down. <clears throat> well, the first thing you need is the road that the cars can drive on. That's easy. You go out to a place called Seal Beach in California, and you shoot down the road, stretching toward the horizon, just like you see it in your head, and you have cars and motorcycles driving out toward the horizon. That's simple. You mask off or mat out everything around the road and the surrounding grass. So what you cut out is is everything beyond the horizon line, everything above the horizon line in the, in the frame, I should say, and a little bit on the right where the windmill's going to go. Okay, that's pretty good. So now you get the windmills. So then what you do is you make a matte painting, which is a lot like the plate, the image behind a green screen that you would put in there, right? Except that this is an actual painting. 
and you paint in the windmills in the sky and fill in the bit of road that you cut out and that, those sorts of things. Okay, that works. The problem is paintings don't move and windmills do. And these windmills kind of have to move because it's an important plot point. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to let you watch the movie on your own. So how do you get a static painting to move? Well, you don't. Somebody comes up with the brilliant idea, well, what, we can make a painting and then attach to the painting the windmill blades in miniature so that they're to scale to the painting. So now you have a painting with physical elements attached to it that are these spinning windmill blades so that they turn and add an extra dimension of life to the painting. So you combine these three elements of the, the physical blades, the map painting, and the road with the cars driving on it. And I'll be honest, the first time I saw it, I did not know it was an effect shot. I really didn't. It was, it, it, to this day, is incredibly convincing. And that's just one example of the kind of problem solving that they were able to do even in the early 40s. And some of these effects still stand up today. I had, uh, I had one of my roommates walk in while I was watching the movie during one of the big effect scenes in the in the last uh, in the last act, and he looked at it like, "Did they really do that?" Like, "No, that's fake." He's like, "I can't tell." I'm like, "I can't either," but I know it can't be real. So that's a bit of problem solving for you today. Effects is a great way to problem solve, but it, having the foresight to see that one of these effects was actually going to cause another problem that the matte painting wouldn't allow for the motion. And I, that, that, that solution created another problem, but they were able to solve that problem very easily. So yeah, problem solving. I, <laughs> it's, it, it is crucial, absolutely crucial uh, in this business and, and for a lot of people just in life in general because life doesn't go the way you want it to. Now, I also said that this movie had some great su suspense and I want to go deeper into that windmill scene to give you one of the best examples of an extended suspense sequence I've ever seen. Now, this starts with a chase. Bad guy driving off in a car and our hero chasing after him in his car or in another car. And in Hitchcock on Hitchcock Volume 2 in an essay called The Film Thriller, this is what Hitch had to say about the nature of a chase as suspense. He said, race a train and an automobile side by side toward an intersection and you may feel fairly sure that they won't talk about looking for the candy, the candy counter until the intersection is passed. And you think about that, he's absolutely right. You can build inherent suspense into a chase scene. In fact, a chase scene naturally has inherent suspense. So we start our extended suspense sequence with a chase. Going after these guys, we turn a corner, though, or our hero turns a corner, and the bad guy's not there. Where'd he go? He's in this open landscape with just a few windmills. Where did he go? But our hero spots a clue, the plot point that I alluded to earlier, that leads him inside the windmill. And sure enough, there's our bad guys. But now he's in this, this windmill with not a ton of hiding places and there's – and the villains are all around him. So he has to get into and then back out of this windmill without being seen. And it, it, it feels like everywhere he turns, there's another threat. There's another one of, one of this, this, this horde of villains near him. And this, this is a modified chase. If you think about it, it's it's the question the the question of will will the train beat the car to the intersection that Hitch posed earlier 
is almost the exact same question as will the bad guy get found or, or sorry, not the bad guy. Will our hero get found inside the windmill? It's pretty much the same question. And the reason that both of those examples, the train in the car racing and, and our hero in the windmill, the reason they work as suspense is because we have all the information as the audience. Now, it's a little bit different than, than one of the earlier examples that I gave you, which was the bomb under the table. It's one that hits quotes all the time, but I'll, I'll give you a quick, quick refresher. If you have two people talking at a table for five minutes and then all of a sudden the bomb goes off and we didn't know it was there, there's no suspense there. It's just a dialogue scene with a big surprise at the end. But if you have – but if you tell the audience that the bomb is under the table first and then their, their dialogue, their conversation, no matter how inane or innocuous it may be, becomes suspense because the audience is sitting there the entire time. What are you doing? Look under the table. Get the bomb out of there. You have to get out of there. You're going to die. So because we know – in the train and car example, where the train, where the car is, there's suspense there. Because we know where our hero is in the windmill and where the bad guys are around him, we have suspense. It's, it's, it's giving the audience information, whether the hero knows it or not, but anything that puts someone we care about on the screen in danger, if we know it, then, then, then we begin to feel that suspense. Now, there's an interesting twist on this that Hitch used in another very extended sequence that I think was absolutely genius. Um, where later our hero is again put in jeopardy when we find out that, that the villains have hired someone to kill him. And we know who this person is, and we know that he is pretending to be someone who's trying to help our hero, but we know better. And Hitch talked about this in that same essay, the film thriller. He says, have the audience provided with information not available to the characters, as when you have a man about to be stabbed in the back by another man. The audience sees, but the victim does not. Suspense results from the audience wishing to warn its friend, the character who is about to be stabbed. Sometimes this has reverse English, so to speak. In Foreign Correspondent, we put Joel McRae, he's the actor who played the hero, on a tower and told the audience in so many sections that he was going to be pushed off. Out of inability to take it, the audience began to want the bad thing to happen. It was as if they said, if he is going to be pushed off, please get it over with. We can't bear the waiting. Can you imagine that? Playing an audience so well that, you act, that they actually get so worked up that they would rather see the hero die because they can't take the suspense any longer. How brilliant is that? Now... There's a lot of distance between this movie and a modern audience. I don't know that for everyone that scene would have the same effect today, but certainly at that time it did. But I'm sure many of us could come up with a scene from a much more modern film where, where we have felt that similar feeling of if this is going to happen, good Lord, let it happen now. So, yeah, um, that's Foreign Correspondent. That's really all I wanted to talk about was kind of give you guys some, some insights into problem solving via the root of effects. And again, talk about suspense. Since it's been a little while, Hitchcock is the master of suspense. And kind of go in depth on that in, 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 and look at it in a way that we hadn't yet. I, I really want to thank you guys for joining us today in this class session of, of Hitchcock University. Um, if you want to reach out to me, uh, the email address for this podcast is hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook and a Twitter. 
Uh, Hitchcock University is the name of the is the Facebook page. Uh, Hitch under no Hitchcock underscore U is the Twitter, and Hitch underscore U is my Instagram, which there's still nothing on there. Um, <laughs> one of these days, I'm going to get better at marketing the show. We'll see. Uh, leave us a rating or a review uh, wherever you listen to this. If it's on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, SoundCloud, wherever it is. We'd certainly love to hear everyone's opinion. Um, I am also very much considering a, a sort of questions from the audience uh, section to this. Uh, so maybe on the next class session, if you guys have any questions, feel free to, to shoot them over to me and, uh, and I'll be more than happy to answer them. Um, since we are in Hitchcock, if they're Hitchcock specific, that would be, that would be good. But you know, I mean, anything anything you want to know about Alfred Hitchcock, um, if I don't have the answers, I can find them for you. Um, or, or any questions you have about filmmaking, my thoughts, my opinions, you know, maybe what Hitchcock thought of other filmmakers in his era, who his influences were, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, just shoot them over to me, and uh, and I'd be more than happy to answer them. I think that'd be kind of cool. Uh, and and one of the things that I the, one of the things that I love about podcasts is. They're usually more informal, and there's there's an opportunity typically for for more creator audience interaction. That's something that I that that I really think could be valuable. Um, I mean, I set this up as an educational thing, and typically, what you have in education is you have a classroom, and you can have discussion formed. And I would love to to somehow simulate that here on the show. So just let me know. Uh, again, that email is uh, hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for joining us here at Hitchcock University for this class session. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Thanks.